This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Economists. I'm Peter Martin. And I'm Gigi Foster. Hello. Gigi, we now know the economy surged in the June quarter, but it was so long ago. We found out this week we're the only developed country to have entered the Delta downturn with both employment and GDP completely recovered, higher than before the coronavirus began. The national accounts, that's what they're called, they came out on Wednesday, are for the three months to June, the so-called June quarter. Now, as I see it, it's uh, September. We take longer than just about anywhere else in the world to put the figures together. Of course, the upside is we get them right. What would you prefer, Gigi? Figures that were quick? China takes just a fortnight? Hmm. Or uh, Australia, which takes nine weeks? Well, ideally, Peter, you want both speed and accuracy. Um, no, ideally. Father, oh, I used to hate those tests at school, speed and accuracy tests. I wasn't yeah, good at either. Yeah, very much. So. Well, it's called an IQ test, Peter, of course. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you would have... Uh, scored very high on them. My father, uh, when I was a child, sold plastic parts for a while, and he used to say to his customers, good, fast, and cheap. You can have any two. So if that (laughs) adage holds here as well, then maybe the key is that we we could spend more on compiling good and accurate data. Now, the US, my country of origin, seems to do pretty well. It releases revised figures, but they are often not far from the early estimates, which are released about a month after a quarter ends. Those are called the advanced advanced estimates. And then they're updated twice, about one and two months after that, as more information arrives. Yeah, what, what happens here is uh, often described as driving, looking through the rearview mirror. Quick question before we get into what we learnt this week and before we speak to the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, about how we're doing. What is the GDP? <laughs> we discussed <laughs> this a lot on our show. <laughs> so we've actually discussed New the, the imperfections a lot of, uh, of gross domestic product or GDP, uh, which is our main measure of economic health used around the world. But briefly, it's a measure of the total income or the total value of production in a country in a time period. It doesn't capture everything that matters, like unemployment or well-being or mental health, for example. But GDP is the main thing that gets reported in the national accounts that came out this week, and it gives a rough read on the amount that people are spending and uh, how the economy is doing in general. It's sort of like, to quote Jackson Brown, the things that money can buy. This is The Economists <laughs> on RN with me, Peter Martin. I'm an economics editor and Gigi Foster. She's an economics professor. We're about to dissect the boiled fruitcake that is the GDP. It's got everything in it. Over those relatively free or autumnal three months to June, economic activity grew an impressive 0.7%. Not bad for a quarter of a year. Over the year, it grew 9.6%, which was a bounce back from the 7% dive when COVID first hit last year. Joining us is Joe Masters, who's the chief economist at the consultancy firm EY, and follows this each quarter for a living. Joe, thanks for joining us. Great to be on your show. What's important that the national accounts tell us about what our life was like before the Sydney lockdown began? There's actually quite a bit that should give us some comfort from these numbers, even though we know that the world has changed dramatically since the June quarter. 
it showed us that the domestic economy, that private domestic demand, so that's mostly household spending, uh, residential construction and business investment, was uh, very robust. It was growing in the June quarter before we got hit by these um, significant lockdowns and restrictions. It also showed us that the public sector, that public spending is continuing to prop up economic activity as we work through the shadow from the pandemic last year. So it's partly our, I suppose, repressed desire to spend and partly the fact that uh, the government's not relying just on that. It's pumping money in. Indeed, uh, government spending uh, on one measure uh, accounted for all of the growth in the GDP. But then again, uh, the boom in consumer spending also accounted for uh, almost all of it and uh, imports and exports detracted from it. Is that the picture we're seeing worldwide with the countries we compare ourselves to? A very sharp V-shaped recovery, almost like a spring, a coiled spring ready to bounce back. I think that's a good analogy. Now, the timing of that uncoiling has varied across advanced economies, which is typically who we compare ourselves to. But we have seen a very consistent pattern that when we ease restrictions and we end lockdowns, Um, that households and businesses come back out and spend money. Now, some of that has been because the government's done such a good job in supporting the income of households and the balance sheets of businesses. But it also shows, I guess, confidence in the future. But right around the world, we have seen that. And it's been particularly consistent in household consumption. And maybe that says something about human nature. As you said, we've seen in lockdown... Uh, people spent money on making their homes more comfortable to spend more time in. So renovation, air fryers, uh, home gym equipment, playstations, home offices and the like. But we've also seen a boom in buying a new house, upgrading your house, in buying cars and also boats and caravans and in fact pets. So, Joe, is this the same kind of pattern we've seen in the United States, my home country as well? Because one of the things I know it's different here in Australia is that we've kept all the rich people in. So those those rich folks who would have gone traveling overseas and plonked money in, you know, Greece or, or Tibet or wherever have stuck around because they've had to because the borders have been closed and they've done all this spending. I mean, the U.S. didn't have border closures. Do they also see that kind of bounce back in spending? So they saw a similar pattern in terms of this making your home more comfortable. We've seen house prices in the US rise more than we have seen here actually in Australia. And there were travel restrictions in the US, not as much as or as sort of draconian as we've seen here. And domestic travel in the US remained more robust. But we have seen a similar spend and we have seen households, as you ease restrictions, Uh, in the US and here, really keen to get out to restaurants and to travel where they can, whether that's overseas or within your own state, um, and to get back to the the gym and the cinema and concerts and, and those sorts of things. We supported business more massively than in other places. I'm wondering whether you can see, comparing us, say, to the US, a difference as a result of that, and maybe there's a downside to what we've done. So some of that is definitional in the channel that you choose. So, for example, in Australia, we use JobKeeper effectively as our wage subsidy, and that was paid to businesses to support their wage bill. In the US, that went directly to households. So it's hard to compare, but we have absolutely supported 
not just uh, through cash uh, into our business sector, but through um, changes that we made around um, regulations and insolvency laws and the like. And in fact, we can um, look at quite contemporary data around insolvencies. And what we saw last year in Australia was almost no businesses go out of business. Um, now, obviously, even outside of a recession in a typical year, you have a certain amount of churn in your business sector, startups that fail. And we just haven't seen that. And even though we've seen some increase in insolvencies in the last couple of months, it's still running at about a third of typical levels, let alone what you'd expect to see. In this a is bad, right? That companies are not going bust because in the US they've gone bust much more. That's where economic sort of vibrancy comes from? Look, it does. And economics teaches us that you want firms that don't have a productive future uh, to exit so that they can free up people and capital to productive firms. Now, it sounds pretty harsh. We use a term called creative destruction. So you want to let those firms go so that you can have a more dynamic future. And look, in Australia, we haven't been very dynamic. Uh, productivity growth has been very poor in recent years. And there's lots of uh, evidence around our lack of business dynamism. Um, I guess there's a timing issue. In the midst of a crisis, um, you want to build a bridge to the other side, which is what we tried to do. And I think we did quite effectively. But recent research from the OECD suggests that the final stages of JobKeeper was actually being used by less productive firms. The more productive firms had already got back on their own feet. So there is a risk that if you support everyone, you don't get that creative destruction. And that means it's harder to recover in a really dynamic way that builds an economy for the future that will produce productive and high paying jobs. Of course, this was, uh, you know, everything that was happening up through June. So things have changed now. What are you expecting uh, going forward? Are you expecting that this quarter that we're in now with the lockdowns is going to hit businesses particularly hard? Are we going to have a wave of creative destruction? And, and what does that mean for, you know, an audience member of ours who might be wondering about his job? I don't think we're going to see significant creative destruction in this quarter. Um, we've actually put a whole heap of fiscal support back into the economy. It looks a little bit different from last year, but in number, it's still significant. And JobSaver, of course, amongst some other state measures, are supporting firms. And I think one of the challenges for the government is going to be how to think about how we balance um, the removal of that support particularly because this time around, I think the exit out is going to be a little harder than it was last year. We're already hearing that removing restrictions is going to be much more cautious, much slower. And even beyond that, the reality is people are going to be a bit more nervous about being out and about given uh, the Delta experience. So you've got this balance where you need to support firms with quite a long tail but you do need to get this creative destruction happening. We need that to happen, not just to support recovery, but to support a stronger and more resilient Australia in the future. Last year, we had a V-shape downturn. Let's call it a downturn, not a recession. Sharp V, so sharp you could see it from space on a graph, right? Didn't matter what scale you looked at. You seem to be suggesting that we won't have that as a result of this second V. That is to say, we'll have the sharp downturn, but it will not be a sharp upturn. It's a half W sort of just going on in infinitum uh, without a, 
a quick recovery. Is that how it looks? At EY, we describe it as a sawtooth-shaped recovery. And I illustrate that as imagine the Nike swoosh, but with a bumpy bottom. Now, to be fair, that's what we thought we would see last year, and we undoubtedly got a V. But I think that is what we'll see this time around. Even if you look at the Doherty Institute modelling, even when you get to 80% vaccination, there is still some baseline um, social distancing and public health measures and trace, track, isolate and quarantine. And we're seeing in the UK today in real time the impact of that ongoing need to isolate or quarantine if you have symptoms or have been in close contact with someone that has. There are firms in the UK that are reporting more than 20% of their workforce at a given time are having to stay at home, which means they're having to cancel shifts at a cafe or they're having to delay elective surgery, for example. So I think there will be ongoing disruption as we truly learn to live with this virus. Final question, Joe. So I'm really curious what your prediction will be um, when we do open international borders. Is that going to pull the, the rug out from under Australian firms and, and the, you know, the regional areas that have benefited from the high income Australians who would normally be traveling, not traveling? I mean, is everybody going to surge overseas and, and Australia is left with very little? Australians have a long history of enjoying offshore travel, and I genuinely don't think that's changed. And I think the amount of domestic travel, even intrastate travel that we've seen, sort of underlies that kind of love of travel. I mean, the truth is it's a, it's a bit of a balance, right? So we open our international borders up and we have Australians who will be keen to travel but that may be to particular destinations and it may look different. They may travel for shorter times. They may choose to stay um, in countries that, uh, you know, have high vaccination rates. My guess is, and I'm a parent, that no parent will want their child to miss any more school. So the idea of extending a five-week holiday in Europe and missing a bit of school, um, people might be hesitant to do that. But then, of course, Gigi will have incoming tourism. Now, one of the surprises of last year is that we spend more travelling overseas than we get from inbound tourism. But we have had a very positive experience in a health perspective through COVID. Even now, you know, our mortality rate is very, very low. So I imagine that we will be a recipient of incoming tourists um, as well. The other thing that will happen, of course, when we open our borders is international students and also for um, parts of our economy that have struggled to fill job vacancies. And I work in one of those industries uh, that will make doing our business a little bit easier. So things will get better, but it will not be like it was before. That is to say, it's a sort of uneven, uncertain Nike swoosh. Joe Masters, Chief Economist at EY. Thank you so much for joining us in a week in which the future is about as uncertain as it's ever been in the midst of the pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is The Economists on RN. For Australia's Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, this week must have been like being in a time warp. The figures he presented showed the economy, quote, strong and resilient, with the, quote, fundamentals sound. But as encouraging and instructive as those figures are, they're already dated. Josh Frydenberg, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be with you. Before I hand over to Peter, let's start with the big picture. In your view, what are the top two or three headwinds that Australia will face as we try to chart an exit from the economic stress of the COVID era? 
Well, the biggest is the unknown that I think every country faces, namely a new variants of the virus. The Delta variant that we're confronting now is very different to the variants that we faced last year. And uh, this is now more contagious, arguably more dangerous and certainly more difficult to suppress. And there's been a very significant acknowledgement in Victoria that they can't eliminate the virus, uh, that they will see case numbers increase. And so they're really buying time as more vaccinations roll out. So I think that's one of the big challenges is the great unknown that we confront in the middle of a pandemic. Um, the second is, of course, uh, we uh, have built up a significant debt burden over the course of this pandemic. It's been necessary to spend as the way we did. And uh, we've made sure our, f- our funding has been targeted. Um, it hasn't been structurally um, spent in the way that it's locked in spending indefinitely. It's tapered off. Programs like JobKeeper have been brought to an end. But there is certainly a major debt burden that every country, including Australia, will have to deal with going forward. And finally, it's just the broader economic challenge that I think will be confronted post-COVID just as it was pre-COVID, which is how do we boost productivity? How do we continue to ensure that our economy grows, that we continue to see strong job creation and that we can adapt to what is an evolving economy, particularly around digital transformation? I do think the economy will look a bit different on the other side, Peter and Gigi, uh, of this uh, of this crisis, but we'll continue to meet those challenges. We were talking about productivity earlier on the program with economist Joe Masters, and she hailed, in a way, the creative destruction in mm. the US, where firms have collapsed. They collapsed in the previous US recession. Here, they have not. We've had fewer insolvencies than normal. And it's looking like you you won't be able to, if you like, withdraw protection for quite a long time. Is that a concern that normally we have lots of companies, especially lots of small businesses failing, and because of your support of the economy, that's not happening? Is that going to set us up for something bad? I wouldn't read it like that, Peter. I think the economic support programs that were provided whether they're the cash flow boost or the JobKeeper payment or even some of the other regulatory changes that were made around insolvency provisions to basically give executives and management more control over their company as they seek to trade out of their financial liabilities. Um, All of that, I think, will help make our economy stronger on the other side. Creative destruction is, of course, important uh, and, uh, and not every company will be successful, but I think we did the right thing through this crisis in extending economic support to those businesses that need it, because often those businesses will be very successful in the post-COVID era, but because they couldn't have customers coming through the door uh, and their bills were running, were continuing to run up, they may have not got through but for our government support. How long can you keep up that support? At your press conference on Wednesday, you sort of hinted that the time would have to come to an end. You, you said it's costing with the lockdowns in the two big states, two mm. billion a week, and that can't continue. Is there a time frame you have in mind? Well, that's just the reduction in economic activity, and then you overlay that with the fiscal cost of more than a billion dollars a week in direct income support and small business payments. But, you know, Peter, my, my point is a broader one, which is 
we have put in place emergency support measures, but we can't continue them at this scale indefinitely. And that's where we need to seek to adjust and live with COVID in a COVID safe way, of course, but we need to make that adjustment because the economy does need to uh, to, to bounce back and the, and the economy can only bounce back when it's not hampered by many of the health restrictions that are currently in place. In the lead up to the budget, you actually talked about more than bouncing back. That is to say, you talked about seeing how low we could push unemployment and not going into budget repair until we've got unemployment substantially better than it used to be. Mm. How low do you think we could push it? We've already done better than we thought. We're we're four point something percent. Yeah, well, we're 4.6. It won't be next month, but... (laughs) Well, it's interesting you say that because what we saw in the last ABS round of, of jobs data figures is that we saw an increase in the number of people on zero hours and who have lost hours of work, obviously, as a result of the of the lockdowns. But we didn't see a spike in the unemployment rate. In fact, we saw more than 2,000 jobs being created across the national economy. So JobKeeper at that time helped keep the connection between employer and employee. We've now pivoted, transitioned to a new form of payment with the COVID disaster payment. That has also provided a degree of connection between the employer and employee. And I have to tell you that the labour market has very much surprised on the upside. We didn't think we'd be going below 5% um, until perhaps Christmas when I did the budget in May. And as you know, we're at 4.6%. How low do you think we could go? As you know, unemployment used to Mm. be 2%, 1% in New Zealand up until the uh, mid-70s. Yeah. I'm not uh, giving a specific number like that. What I'm saying is I think we can continue to drive it to below, keep it below 5%. But again, you know, the next few months are going to be challenging, I think, for the economic data as a result of the lockdowns. But once we turn into the new year and hopefully those stringent lockdowns are very much behind us, I think the economy can regather that momentum. And it's been really pleasing to see Australia avoid the labour market scarring that was so obvious in both the 80s and the 90s recession. You spoke of another kind of scarring on Wednesday. You spoke of a a shadow GDP or a shadow pandemic, other Mm. costs which aren't being considered. Mm. What are you talking about? Well, what I'm talking about, Peter, is obviously the mental health impact that the crisis is having. Of course, we've got to be focused on reducing people's uh, chances of getting COVID and preventing the transmissibility of the virus more broadly across the community. But there's another health outcome, which is arguably even more important, and that's ensuring the mental health and well-being of our community. And lockdowns are a very blunt instrument. And if you look at the data with the number of people who are turning up at hospitals in emergency departments with Uh, mental health issues, they have been increasing dramatically. In Victoria, more than 340 teenagers a week. And that is a 163% increase on what the numbers were pre-pandemic. In New South Wales, it's around a 50% increase on the pre-pandemic levels. And Patrick McGorry, a former Australian of the Year, a noted psychiatrist, has spoken very openly about the shadow pandemic that's occurring in our midst. So I think we've got to be very conscious particularly of the impact on young people that these lockdowns are having. And that's why bringing them to an end as as soon as possible is important. 
Does that knowledge change the calculus, the cost-benefit? As you, Stephen Kennedy, the, mm. the head of uh, your department, the Treasury, is a former nurse. Does mm. that knowledge of the, I suppose, uh, not counted economic effects, the not counted real effects of what's happening, change your calculus to make it move more toward freedom, um, not in the British sense, uh, I imagine, but uh, and less toward lockdown? Well, nobody's talking about letting it rip, so to speak. I've seen that phrase used. No one's talking about that because to do so uh, would, I think, be you know very counterproductive. Even the Doherty work is saying when you get to 70 to 80%, Peter, you ease restrictions, you open up, um, but you do so with some restrictions that are in place, restrictions that still cost the economy. It may be about density limits within cafes and restaurants, mask wearing and social distancing and the like. But there are still health restrictions, but they're short of those stringent lockdowns or border closures that we've seen. And so it's about getting the balance right. And I'm very conscious of the health implications, not just of COVID, but on people's well-being that the lockdowns are having. In brutal terms, you're, you're trading off to some extent lives, some lives, which would be saved if we continued to have lockdowns, versus well-being, which matters too. Well, I, I wouldn't put it like that. What I'd say is that the Doherty Institute has said that even with 70 and 80% vaccination rates, there will be seriously ill people who get COVID. And, and we have to accept that. That's Particularly those who are, vac- who are unvaccinated. There will be hospitalisations. There will be tragic deaths. Um, they've put some numbers around it, their numbers, um, and they're, of course, they're medical experts. But the broader point is that you have to look at this issue in its entirety when you are working on the next steps. You've said, too, that if a state decides to keep lockdown mm. when you're at 70 to 80 percent, mm. when Australia's ready to reopen, you won't support the people in the state. That is to say, you won't have a job saver, a, a job keeper. I'm wondering whether, as a human being, that's and as a politician, that's actually a sustainable position to be in, to say to West Australians, oh, sorry, your Premier's not reopening, uh, we're no longer going to give you Commonwealth support. Well, Peter, I'd look at what I actually said. And what I did say is that there should be no expectation on behalf of the Premiers and the Chief Ministers that the scale of our economic support will continue either indefinitely or in the way that it currently is when we get to 70 and 80%. I mean, there may be health restrictions that are still needed, which impact on people's livelihoods and the number of hours of work that they get. So we would have to consider that in that current context. But when you get to 70 and 80%, you won't need those stringent lockdowns that we're currently funding. You won't need um, those border closures, which are currently in place. Treasurer, with a, a more difficult job than you even imagined last year. Yes. <laughs> wish you... <laughs> It's challenging, isn't it? But I mean, I'm I'm sure that's occurring in a number of fields. And, you know, I do want to give a shout out, Peter, uh, to our incredible health professionals on the front line and all the work that they do, because they've helped keep us safe. And this has been a trying time for the nation. And no doubt many a history book, including an economic text or two, will be written about it. But uh, there's still a long way to go. But I'm confident we can get through it and be stronger on the other side. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. 
Head to The Economist's website for lots of links related to the GDP and maybe even an economics book about the COVID era. Who wrote that one, Gigi? Uh, me and two um, other people. Next week on the show, we're thrilled to have Nobel Prize winner and one of the fathers of behavioural economics, Richard Thaler. He developed the idea that we should nudge people into making good choices. It's an idea you might say we need now more than ever, but it has critics, and we'll put those criticisms to him. Hope you can join us. Goodbye till then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.